we come to an exciting uh, passage from our reading this week. When you consider all that's happening in our nation and in our world, Paul's word to the Thessalonians that we're about to look at is just a great uh, comfort, great encouragement to us as well. Let me invite your attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. You know, the Bible is very clear on what is to come in the future. And our hope as believers is in the return of Jesus. We don't need to be worried about uh, spending our time on this earth worrying about what's going to happen in our nation or what's going to happen in the world or what the political future looks like or what the economic future looks like. We need to be focused on our eternal future, to anticipate what is coming and anticipate our life in the next world. Now, I realize there can be a lot of confusion uh, about eschatology, but on the return of Jesus for the church, the Bible is very, very clear. It's very straightforward. It's not really difficult to understand. Now, there are differing views on the order of events of end times, the rapture of the church, the tribulation, the second coming, but again, on the return of Christ for his church, the Bible is very straightforward and very clear. So this morning, we're going to simply lay out what is revealed in Scripture. Let's read together in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You know, in Paul's letters to the various churches, he was always giving instruction based on the needs of the church. Well, God in his sovereignty has preserved his word down through the ages so that we're also given sound biblical guidance that speaks to our needs and our concerns today. Let me give you a quick background of what Paul is speaking to here in the, in the Thessalonian church. They had understood and been taught uh, when, when they came to Christ, they had been taught that Christ, while he had already died and been resurrected and ascended, that he was going to be returning for the church, returning for believers. Well, time had passed since that had been taught. Uh, many of the Thessalonians were suffering greatly. Many were being persecuted. And some within their body, within their church, had died. And so the Thessalonians wondered, were they suffering and being persecuted? Was that some form of punishment? Or were those who died, was, was death some form of punishment? And was it possible that those who already died were going to miss the gathering in heaven, that they wouldn't be uh, there in bodily form? If you notice, if you back up to verse 9, Paul mentions about this church, how incredibly loving they were toward each other. Well, out of that love, uh, they were sad and they were grieved that those who had died might have missed the return of Jesus. So that's the issue that Paul is explaining here when he talks about the rapture of the church. By the way, you don't see the word uh, rapture uh, anywhere in the Bible. You won't find it in your concordance. It's an English word that's taken from the Latin word rapio, which means to to catch up or to snatch away. That's where we get the word rapture when we talk about the rapture of the church. Well, the rapture is the next event on God's timeline. 
There are no signs, this is what we would call a signless event, there are no signs that have to occur for us to know the rapture is coming. Now, now you say, well, Jesus talked with his disciples about signs. He did. He said there were signs that would point to the day of the Lord, the time when he would come and intervene in, in human history. There were signs that, report, that, that uh, refer to or point to his second coming. Jesus shared these signs with the disciples. Paul actually, in, in chapter 5, in the very next chapter, mentions one of these signs. He says there will be the appearance of peace and security and then sudden destruction. Those signs all point to when Jesus intervenes in human history, that happens after the rapture. So we don't have any specific signs that will point to when the rapture is going to occur. Well, if you don't understand the order of events, let me just give you a quick breakdown before we jump in here uh, to this section of Thessalonians. Jesus, uh, the order or the breakdown of events in, in the last days are that Jesus will first return for his people to take them with him uh, to the place he's been preparing for them. Remember, he told the disciples that in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. This is not the second coming. Uh, we'll see in just a moment that he doesn't actually, when he returns to the church, he doesn't set foot on the earth. It's not his second coming. But he'll return for the church. After his return for the church, there'll be a period, seven years of tribulation. Uh, part of that is what the day of the Lord refers to. And then, after those seven years, Jesus will come. He will come for his second time on the earth. During his second coming, he will judge those who have survived the tribulation. He will bind Satan for a thousand years. He will set up his millennial kingdom, his reign here on earth, where Jerusalem will be the capital. Jesus will reign for a thousand years of peace and prosperity. After that thousand years, Satan is released. He is ultimately defeated, and he is cast in the lake of fire for eternity. At that same time, there'll be the great white throne judgment when everyone, all of the wicked from all of history, will stand before God, and they will be judged, and like Satan, they will be cast into the lake of fire. And then God will create a new heavens and a new earth, and that's where we will enjoy eternity with him. So that's kind of a, a rough timeline of events, a basic timeline of events. Now, let's look in verses 13 through 17. We're looking at just the first event uh, the early believers were eager, they were anticipating this event, they were ready to be uh, united with Christ. You know, if you think about it, Christians in, in previous generations have been more aware and lived in greater anticipation of the return of Christ for the church. Uh, unfortunately, in our day, I would say that we've gotten pretty caught up in the world and we have forgotten that we're not made for this world. These believers were eagerly anticipating the return of Christ. You know, today there are some believers who are skeptical of the Scriptures. Now, to me that sounds like an oxymoron to say a believer is skeptical of the Scriptures, but there are many people who claim to be believers, but they don't accept the Word of God as completely infallible. Some of them will even deny the literal coming of Christ or His church. They may not even believe in the second coming and the events that precede and follow it. In fact, a recent study of evangelical believers found that 60% of them did not believe this event that we're studying right here. And yet it's explicitly stated in the Bible. How can you claim to be an evangelical believer and not believe God's word? And here's their logic that they use. They say, well, this event that, that Paul talks about here and that Jesus talks about and that Paul also mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, this event was promised over 2,000 years ago, and it hasn't happened. 
Nothing has really changed. Why would we believe in some cataclysmic uh, global holocaust when everything has been the same for centuries, ever since it started? They would say, well, maybe this is some kind of symbol, or maybe it's figure of speech or an analogy. I want to ask you the same question I asked you last week. Do you believe in the infallibility of the Word of God? Clearly, what Paul has written here is factual history. Now, now you could say, well, how can it be history? It hasn't happened. It's pre-written historical fact. What we're reading about here is just as much a historical event as every event that has ever occurred in recorded history. We don't know when it's going to occur, but it will happen. And God's Word says this is what's going to take place. How's it going to happen? Well, it's going to happen according to the timetable of a God for whom a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. It's going to happen at the initiation of a God who is very patient with his rebellious creation. You remember that Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 9, listen, God's not slow in keeping his promise, but God is patient. He's not willing for any to perish, but for all to have or to come to eternal life. Well, let's get to it. Let's look at what Paul says here. Verse 13, they're worried. The church is worried about those who had already died. You'll notice that Paul calls them those who are asleep. The Greek word here for sleep can refer to one of two things. It can refer to actual sleep, or the word here for sleep can refer to the body of a believer resting in the grave. In fact, let me tell you something interesting that that is still present in our day. The New Testament believers took the Greek word for sleep, and they put a second word with it, the word place. And from that, we get our English word cemetery. Literally, the word cemetery means a sleeping place. You know what that tells us? It's a temporary place. It's not the final resting place of one who has placed their faith in Christ. Something else about this Greek word for sleep, the word asleep refers only to the body, never to the soul. It was never used to talk about a soul, just about a body. So when Paul says they're asleep in Christ, he's talking about a temporary condition for the believer's body. The soul never goes to sleep. The soul doesn't go into some form of of suspended animation. Your soul and my soul live on forever into eternity. Let me give you two very simple, there are many, but two very simple examples from Scripture. In Luke 16, you have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And and we find in that story that when the rich man died, he was immediately in torment. And when Lazarus died, he was immediately in Abraham's presence, or uh, a place of paradise is what that would be. Second example is one you're very familiar with, and that is of the the thief on the cross, the one who asked Jesus to remember him, the one who had a repentant spirit. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, I looked up the Greek word for today, and it doesn't mean at some time in the future. It, It means on this day, distinct from yesterday, distinct from tomorrow, on this specific day. Jesus told that thief, at the moment you die, you're going to die today, at the moment you die, you'll be with me in paradise. So we, we have hope for believers who have died because they're in a far better place. 
We still grieve. Paul doesn't say here that, that we don't grieve. We, we miss them. We, we have suffered loss, but we have hope because they're in Christ. Their soul is instantly with Jesus, and their body is in a temporary place of rest. If it's a temporary place of rest, that means that there's more to come. Now look at verse 14. Paul says, look, here's the guarantee for what I'm about to tell you. Here, here's what you believe that undergirds his promise. You believe that Jesus died and rose again. How does that undergird the promise of more life to come? Well, his death laid the foundation for eternal life. We know that his death paid for our sin. The wages of sin is death. So he paid those wages by dying, but he also rose. His resurrection shows that his death was sufficient to pay that wage of death. And his death was sufficient to pay that wage of death because his resurrection shows that he conquered death. There is no more death for those who are in Christ. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, he validated the sacrifice that Jesus made. He, he said by raising him from the dead, it is perfect, it is complete. There is nothing that needs to be added to it. There is nothing else that needs to be done. That's why Paul told the Romans in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We use the term Savior and Lord. If Jesus is your Savior, then you have said that you believe his sacrifice for you is enough. If Jesus is Lord, Paul said you confess him as Lord, it means that you're choosing to live your life under him, under his direction, under his leadership. And God, Paul says here, is going to bring with Jesus back to heaven. That's where Jesus has been. He's going to bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, and we'll see in a moment, and also those of us who are still alive. What is he saying? We're going to experience resurrection just like Jesus did. He says it here. Jesus said it in John 14. He told the disciples, I'm going to prepare a place, and I will come and take you with me to the place I prepared. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15, in the twinkling of an eye, these things are going to happen. Now look at verse 15. Paul reminds them, this was not Paul's idea. It was not Paul's interpretation of some vague scripture. Paul tells them, this is a divine revelation. He says, we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Now, he's not just explaining what's going to happen to those who've already died. Clearly, those of us who are still alive at Jesus' coming are a part of this event as well. In fact, I want you to notice that Paul uses this word. Paul says, we. He doesn't say you as in you who will read this after I'm dead and gone. He says we. Like the early believers, Paul understood the time was not known. He understood what Jesus said in, in Matthew 24 to the disciples. No man knows the day or the hour, but from the earliest days after Jesus' ascension, believers hoped that his return for the church would be in their lifetime, and Paul hoped for that too. And what I'm saying to you is, just like those believers, we should anticipate and live prepared for his coming. That's how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to expect his imminent return for us. Verse 16, Paul explains how it all goes down. He lays it out. Here's what's going to happen. Listen, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Jesus is coming for his bride. He's not sending an angel. He's not sending a messenger. If Jesus had human feelings, I'd say it this way to you. He is excited and anxious to have us with him. 
And so Paul says he's personally going to descend from heaven. That's where he has been. He's been in heaven interceding for us, and now he's going to come and take us back with him to heaven. So the Lord will descend from heaven. Look at these next three phrases. With the cry of a command, that's a military term. It's as if the troops are at ease, and all of a sudden the commander walks in and calls for attention. It's a quick command. With the cry of a command, the voice of an archangel. It's going to be a forceful announcement from heaven. You're not going to miss it. And then he says, with the sound of the trumpet of God. You know, you look in scripture, trumpets are used most often in the Old Testament, but trumpets were always being blown in the Old Testament. And trumpets were blown for all kind of occasions, but typically the trumpet call was to call people to assembly for a, a celebration, for a festival, usually for something positive. And Paul is saying, God is going to issue the assembly call, the trumpet call, to call us out of this world to meet our Savior. And the dead in Christ will rise first. They're not going to miss out. No matter how long they've been in the grave, no matter how decomposed their body is, no matter if they've been cremated. You know that once a body has been in the grave for about a hundred years, even the bones turn to dust. There are people who worry, the Bible says, this is a whole other topic, but the Bible says nothing against cremation. More and more people are being cremated, and some believers wonder about that. The Bible says nothing against cremation. Listen, God created man from the dust. He will have no problem whether your bones have completely returned to the dust or whether your body has been uh, cremated and, and, and turned to ashes. God has no problem because he created from the dust. God has no problem bringing that body back together. Here's what I'm saying. Those of us who are still alive, we're not going to be following skeletons up in the air to meet the Lord. You know what's going to happen to those who are already in the grave at the moment that Jesus returns, they're going to rise with a new resurrection body. Now, what is that going to look like? What's that going to be like? Well, we don't fully know, but we know that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, that our resurrected body will be like Jesus' resurrected body. So it's going to have some kind of physical form. The good news is it's not going to be corruptible. It's not going to weaken and decay with age. It's going to be an incorruptible body. Now, verse 17 that's what happens to those who are dead in Christ. This is us, verse 17, those who are still alive. He says, we will be caught up with them. The Greek word harpazo means to be seized or to snatched hastily or eagerly. To seize or snatched up hastily or eagerly. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says it happens in a twinkling of an eye. It's quick. You're, literally, your head's going to spin. That'll be the first time. The second time your head's going to spin is when you're in heaven and you see all that God has prepared for you. But in a, in, in a moment, we're going to be snatched up from this world. We're going to meet the Lord in the air and we will be with him forever, never separated again. Now, as I said a few moments ago, this, this is not the second coming. You notice we meet the Lord in the air. He doesn't come to the earth. At the second coming, Jesus literally returns to the earth he plants his feet on the Mount of Olives. The Mount splits. A stream flows into the desert. And Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom and reign. But the first thing that's going to happen, the beginning of the end, is what we're reading about here in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. The beginning of the end is the church will first disappear. 
Now you've seen movies or perhaps read books. That's, that's going to cause a great challenge for those who are left behind. Sadly, there's not going to be some kind of widespread global repentance. In fact, the general feeling when the church is taken out of this world, the general feeling is going to be rejoicing. It's going to be rejoicing that Christians who have been the problem in this world, that Christians who have, have held back society and culture are finally out of the way. Christians are going to be gone, and the hatred of this world for the children of God is going to turn to inexpressible joy. They'll be so thankful that we're not here any longer. Well, we certainly won't be worried any longer about the world thinks of us. We shouldn't worry about that even now. But when that time comes, we'll no longer be here. Verse 18, Paul says, Encourage one another with these words. What words? All the words he's spoken. You want a simple summary of how we encourage each other? It's these words. We are going to meet our Lord. Let me say two things I thought about related to that word encourage. The first encouragement this morning is a word of comfort. If you're struggling in your life right now, if you're going through great difficulty, if you've recently experienced a loss or you're still struggling with the loss of a loved one, these are great words of comfort. Because if that loved one knew the Lord, they're already with Jesus. They're in a far better place. They're not suffering. They're not struggling. And you're going to see them again in a physical body and know them. The other thing I think about when Paul says encourage one another with these words is the encouragement is also a word of challenge. Are you ready? If we found out this, this morning, if we knew that Jesus was coming this afternoon, would it change the way that we live today? If we knew that Jesus was coming next Sunday, would it change what happens in our lives Monday through Saturday this week? We're to be ready for his coming. We're to be living faithfully for him. We're to be sharing the truth. Remember, he's waiting so that more of those who don't know him will have the opportunity to repent and come to faith. And how is that message going to get out? It's going to get out through us. Jesus is coming for his bride, for his church, for those of us who are believers, who are followers of Christ. And we are to be always ready, any day, for his coming. May those be words of comfort and challenge to us as followers of Christ.